0: Welcome to Ramblings with a Medical Historian. I'm your host, Nicole Curry, and this is the podcast where I ramble on about the history of medicine, such as fun facts, common misconceptions, and strange practices. I may even talk about other historical topics, such as local history. This is episode 4. The topic for this episode is very special to me, and I hope you enjoy it. Today, I will be talking about the Hermitignier Clerg National Historic Site, or as we call it, the Old Stone House. Now, I've been volunteering and working at this museum since I was about 10 years old, so I've been there roughly 17 years, and I know a whole lot about this site. I've tried to narrow it down and just give you a rough idea of the site. I have left a lot of things out, but it is probably still going to be a pretty long episode. So, with that being said, let's get into it. The Ermitinger Clerg National Historic Site is actually two historic buildings or sites. The Ermitinger Old Stone House and the Klerg Block House. Let's start with the Old Stone House. This building was built in 1812 by Charles Oakes Ermatinger and it is the oldest stone building northwest of Toronto. Charles was born in 1776 in Montreal to a Swiss immigrant, Lawrence Ermitinger, and his wife, Jemima Oaks. He began as a clerk for the Northwest Company in 1795. Here's an interesting tidbit. In 1798, while working along the North Saskatchewan River, Charles and another trader became lost in the woods. He emerged 16 days later, but his companion was never seen again. While out west, he traveled to Sandy Lake, Minnesota for trade. There he married Chief Catawabeda's daughter, Menanawi. They had five children before moving to Sault Ste. Marie in 1806. They settled on the South Shore, taking up lodging at the home of Mr. Nolan. Two years later, he acquired property on the North Shore where he built a log home and began to clear the land. He had about 200 acres and only cleared about 30. He hired men from Montreal to build his stone mansion in the style of the homes in Montreal. The house was built in two parts, one floor at a time. His home was completed around 1814. In 1805, he was offered shares in the Northwest Company. However, by 1810, Charles had established himself as an independent fur trader and merchant. Now, he originally began with the Northwest Company because both his father and his uncle worked with the company. However, he started realizing that it was really difficult to advance here as just a fur trader and merchant. And this is what he really wanted to do. So he decided to go at his own. And let's say he was very successful. During the War of 1812, which was a war between the new United States of America and Canada, though it wasn't Canada at that time. Canada didn't form until 1867. Charles decided to aid the British. He gathered voyageurs, the men who transported the goods between the traders and cities such as Montreal, and other acquaintances to help during the first military maneuver of the war. Captain Charles Roberts, commander of Fort St. Joseph, which is located about an hour's drive east of the Sioux on St. Joseph Island at the eastern tip, Captain Roberts was given orders by Major General Sir Isaac Brock to capture Fort Mackinac, which was originally a British fort that was ceded to the Americans after the War of Independence. The maneuver was successful and the only battle with no bloodshed or a single shot being fired. In 1814, American troops attacked Sault Ste. Marie and began to burn British buildings. They burned the Northwest Company post, which had to be rebuilt after the war. Now, Mr. Erlinginger was able to talk his way out of his house being burned, saying things like he had no ties to either He was a simple, independent fur trader, just trying to go about his business. After the War of 1812, the Treaty of Ghent solidified the border between what is now Canada and the United States. This division began to affect Charles' business as trade with the US became more complicated. Charles continued to try and trade in the US, however he kept having his licenses revoked and his trade cut off, so eventually he abandoned trade in the US altogether. On the property there were several buildings, the main stone house, as well as two stone buildings on either side. These were described as two towers on either side of the stone mansion. The one on the western side was a gristmill and the one on the eastern side was described as an inn or maybe housing for his employees. He had roughly about 50 employees that would help with the farming as well as his business. He grew many crops such as corn and wheat for his gristmill as well as regular vegetable crops for food. Menanawi or Charlotte as he called her, had both a medicinal and herb garden that she would use for their medicinal properties as well as for her cooking. Mananawi kept most of her culture and traditions that she taught to her children. They had about 13 children in all, although only 7 made it to adulthood. Some of these children even returned to their indigenous roots, and one even became an indigenous chief. Mananawi lived for a relatively long time, surviving well into her 80s. Charles remained close with his father-in-law, Chief Kadwa Beta. Beta often traveled to the Sioux to visit his daughter and grandchildren. Charles and Beta also remained good business partners as well. The old stone house is a grand beautiful mansion. As we like to say, the mansion in the wilderness. There are two stone stanchions at the edge of the property which used to be the waterfront entrance. The St. Mary's River used to be much wider and reach Charles's property. A long dock would have begun at the stone stanchions where the voyageurs and visitors would dock. The beautiful staircase in the foyer that leads to the second floor was made in Montreal and then shipped in pieces by canoe to Sault Ste Marie. It would have taken six weeks to travel from Montreal to the Sault by canoe. There are four rooms on each floor as well as a basement or cellar and an attic. There was also a small summer kitchen out back that we have replicated and still use to this day. The original summer kitchen would have probably been farther away from the house and more of a simple log building than an elaborate hearth because the summer kitchen often burned down so they would always rebuild around the hearth. In 1821, Mr. Ermetinger decided to redecorate the home. Part of this renovation included adding a small cast iron wood stove to the second floor bedroom to help heat the home during the colder months. The house was a center of social life in the suit. Every year at this time, Mr. Ermitinger would host a holiday caribou dinner. They would celebrate the Yuletide season by decorating the house with evergreen boughs, the lovely smells of holiday baking and spices, the Yule log, and mistletoe and holly. During the Regency period, they did celebrate Christmas and wished people a Merry Christmas. It was celebrated in many ways, such as a good meal and charity to the poor. So the Erlatingers having a Christmas party with friends and neighbors that would have likely lasted a few days was not uncommon. The house is absolutely beautiful at this time of year. If you want to learn more about what we do for Yule at the house, find our Yuletide Traditions video on the Friends of ECNHS YouTube channel. Discover the videos that I have filmed and edited there. But fair warning, I am just a beginner videographer, so the quality isn't the best. Mr. Tinger was also a magistrate or justice of the peace in the Sioux. He dealt with people like Lord Selkirk, who wanted Charles's help to arrest leaders of the Northwest Company at Fort William in Thunder Bay, but. Charles refused. As much as the Ermentinger seemed to like the Sioux and thrive in the community, trading became difficult after the War of 1812. As I said, he continued to have his tradings in the States thwarted. Also with the death of some of his children in 1823 and 1827, it just became too difficult for him. Therefore, in 1828, he took his youngest children and his wife back to Montreal. He settled back on his family's property on the island of Montreal. It was unusual of him to take his indigenous wife and children home with him, as most of the traders did not bring their native wives home to the cities. They most likely had a special and loving relationship or at least that's what we like to believe. Charles's health began to falter. So on September 6th, 1832, he married Mananawi in a Christian church in Montreal. This was to assure that his children were now legal in the eyes of the law and would be his legal heirs, so that upon his death, They would receive their inheritance and have legal status, and his wife would be protected as well. Charles died on September 4th, 1833, just shy of their one-year anniversary. The house remained empty, under the care of Monsieur Lafont. Charles never obtained a proper title to the land, despite his efforts. In 1821, Major Winnett granted him a certificate permitting him to occupy the land. A crown grant could never be granted because the land hadn't been surveyed yet. He petitioned the government of Upper Canada for a land deed, and his son Charles Jr. did the same in 1835, but nothing was done. A survey was done, however, in 1846, and the Robinson Treaty in 1850 opened the possibility of sale to settlers. In 1852, the government decided that land could be sold for a nominal fee to residents. Charles Jr. did not want to claim the deed anymore, but he quit claimed the land and house in 1853 to David Pym who received the first official deed to the house in 1856. The Ermitingers left in 1828 and did not return to their home, so the house stood empty until 1833 when Reverend William McMurray, an Irish missionary, resided in the home and used it as a church. The Anglican church rented the house for £25 per year for him, He was to establish a mission among the Ojibwe in the Sioux. He remained in the house for nine years. It is believed that during this time, the summer kitchen burnt down. In 1836, George Caitlin sketched the area and depicted the old stone house with a small outbuilding. This is most likely the summer kitchen. In 1844, John Balladin wrote a letter discussing the dilapidated state of the house under the care of Monsieur Lafon. He never described an outbuilding, which likely means that the summer kitchen burnt down. Balladin also wrote that Joseph Wilson, the collector of customs and postmaster of the village, was anxious to occupy the house and it seems he did so shortly after Belladin's letter. David Pym, who was the man that I mentioned who held the first deed to the house in 1856, was an Irish immigrant who arrived in the Sioux with his wife Margaret in 1852. In her pictures, She seems like a shrewd, angry, scary lady, and there are even rumors that she most likely killed her husband. The Pims purchased the old Stone House in 1852 and turned it into the Stone House Hotel. On the second floor of the house, we have the Victorian parlor, a beautiful sitting room with an upright piano, a burgundy velvet sofa, and many Victorian artifacts that depict the Victorian time period when the Pims resided in the home. All of the first floor rooms are of the Regency time period when the Ermitingers lived there. We have tried to bring the home back to its original state as much as possible. In 1858, Pim became the postmaster, and the post office was moved from the Hudson's Bay Company post to the Stone House Hotel. Now in 1821, the Hudson's Bay Company bought out the Northwest Company. So the Northwest Company post that I mentioned earlier that was located on the North Shore next to the Rapids changed to the Hudson's Bay Company post. Pym remained the owner of the house until 1863 when he sold the property to Thomas Herrick. It seems, however, that they were renting out the property before then sheriff richard carney arrived in the sioux in the 1850s working as both sheriff and stipendary magistrate until 1859 when the village was made the capital of the judicial district of algoma and colonel john prince became judge we believe carney came to reside in the old stone house around 1859 he lived and worked in the house However, when Colonel John Prince arrived, they realized that a courthouse had to be built. So the old stone house became the temporary government quarters. The downstairs rooms were converted into the courtrooms and an outbuilding was built out back and used as the jail cells. The courthouse first opened In 1860 and the new courthouse was not completed until 1866 on the grounds of our current courthouse. So the old stone house was run as a courthouse for six years. W.R. Dosser also rented part of the first floor as a tavern from 1862 to 65. So half of the first floor was courtrooms and the other half was a tavern. Kearney most likely returned to the home in 1866 and was living there. In 1869, Herrick sold the property to Kearney and they lived there for another 60 years. We believe that once the courthouse was gone, the jail cells were converted into a small apartment and that a mother and young son lived there for a time. We have records of a Lucy Moore and her five-year-old son from around 1871 to about 1888 living in the apartment at the old stone house. It is believed that in 1888, this outbuilding was torn down. An archaeological dig done in nineteen seventy four revealed the foundations of this building and the outline of the old jail cells when the Kearneys left the house in the early nineteen hundreds. the home was then converted into a boarding house for young girls, then a tea room, dance hall, and finally apartment buildings. The city bought the house in 1865 and began its restoration to the former elegant mansion. This restoration took a long time since the home had been converted so many times. The place has been running as a museum ever since, with renovations continuing on throughout the years. For about 20 years, the old stone house museum was only the one building. Then to preserve another historic building, the city moved the Clerk Blockhouse onto the property. The block house consists of two floors, a lower stone story and a log cabin type second story. The Lower Stone story was actually part of the old Northwest Company post that was rebuilt in 1819 after the War of 1812. It used to be the old gunpowder magazine. It only had small rectangular windows near the roof so that it would only allow a little light in, but also allow the men to defend the post by shooting their muskets out the windows. They did not want too much light to go into the building because it could accidentally ignite the gunpowder in 1821 the hudson's bay took over the northwest company post the post remained the hudson's bay company for a while however with the decline of the fur trade the post was eventually abandoned in 1894 Francis Hector Klerg arrived in Sault Ste. Marie. He purchased and completed a failed power canal that he renamed the Lake Superior Power Company, which is still standing to this day, and formed a subsidiary, the Togona Water and Light Company, to handle the commercial needs of the Sioux. He began to look at building other industries in town, Clark purchased a plot of land near the rapids on the North Shore to build his pulp and paper mill, as well as his steel plant. On the property, there were the remains of the old fur trading post. He decided to use the remaining stone building, which was the old gunpowder magazine, to build his home. He added a second wood story to give the home the appearance of a frontier fort, Hence the name Blockhouse as it resembles the blockhouses of the frontier forts. He was able to survey his industries from his home. He did also build a mansion on one of the hills in the Sioux. It was Montfermier on Mothley Hill. And he built this for his family. It was a beautiful, elegant mansion. However, it did burn down around 1934. His steel plant used iron ore and nickel from the area, so he bought the mines to supply his plant. The plant is still in operation today. The pulp and paper mill is unfortunately closed, but the buildings remain and have been converted into the Algoma Conservatory, as well as the Machine Shop, which is an event space that also houses several restaurants. Clerg had several other industries as well, such as the Algoma Central Railway and many more. Clerg eventually left the Sioux somewhere between 1903 to 1912. In 1903, there was a workers' riot on September 27th at the paper mill due to unpaid wages. It was a difficult time for Claude's industries as he struggled with funding and profits. Throughout the years, the industries continued a pattern of prosperity and struggle. Often, the industries would close down for a time period and then reopen. However, the paper mill permanently closed, and now our steel plant is facing that threat as well. The overnight staff, most likely the security staff, would stay in the blockhouse. The blockhouse was most likely used as part of their offices. Sometime around the 80s or early 90s, there was a fire in the house. And you can see the charring on the wooden beams when standing on the first floor. It is believed that kids may have accidentally set a fire one evening. In the 1990s, the paper mill was expanding and they were going to tear the blockhouse down. The city decided to preserve the house. So the top floor was carefully lifted and placed on a flatbed transport and carefully driven 2.5 kilometers to the old stone house. The lower stone section was carefully labeled and taken apart like a jigsaw puzzle and reassembled on the eastern side of the old stone house. On this eastern side between the old stone house Pym Street were several homes. These houses were eventually torn down and the property was added to the site, probably between the 1970s and 1996 when the blockhouse was moved to this location. With the addition of the blockhouse, the site became the Ermentinger Clerg National Historic Site. In behind the blockhouse, there are raspberry, currant, and gooseberry bushes, and a small apple orchard. On the east side, there is a small blockhouse garden, and in front, two large crop gardens. We use the harvest for our dinners and teas that we host on site. Behind the summer kitchen is an herb garden and a medicinal garden. There are also flower gardens all around the property. We tried to grow everything that is historically accurate to this area. About five years ago, we added the Heritage Discovery Center, which now allows us to be open year round. It houses our gift shop, offices, part of our archives, theater, which has an introduction film to the site, and our War of 1812 gallery. So that is all I have to say about the Ermatinger-Clerk National Historic Site. I hope you have liked this episode. For more information on the old stone house you can follow them at Irma Tinger National Historic Site on Facebook and Irma Tinger on Instagram. Or you can follow the Friends of on both our Facebook and Instagram page at Friends of ECNHS. We also have our YouTube page as well. I will make sure all the links to those are in the description for this episode. And as always, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and now Twitter at Ramblings with a Medical Historian. So, thank you for listening. Stay tuned and keep rambling on.